0: Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. My name is Nate Wagner. I am one of the pastors here at Portico Church Arlington. Welcome. And we are starting a new series in the Psalms. So we're going to spend the summer going through the book of Psalms, also known as the Psalter. And I don't know what your expectations of the Psalms are. I know what my expectations of the Psalms are. Usually are. And it goes something like this when I get frustrated, discouraged, when I'm feeling something, when I feel like I need something comforting, something consoling, I'm like, you know what? I need to read the Psalms. And then I open up the Psalms and I'm like flipping through. I'm like, oh, I don't understand that. Reading, like, oh, that's not comforting. None of this makes sense. And I get frustrated. I get frustrated. Do you guys feel that ever? Maybe you're smarter than I am. I don't know. But I think that that is a pretty common idea that we have in our contemporary church culture with the Psalms. Like they are things that are written for me specifically in my life to help me feel better. Where God will kind of of soothe me. It's almost like a counselor who comes and just makes me feel a little bit better. But that is very different than the purpose of the psalms. And so I want to kind of disorient us maybe a little bit towards our preconceptions about what the psalms are there for and what they do. And I want to orient us to what the purpose is in the entire scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, how the Psalms fit in. And how the Psalms fit into this are kind of, I'm alluding to it in the subtitle of the series. They are prayers in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. Prayers in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. Christ is a title. It's a word that we use to describe an anointed the long-awaited Messiah of the Hebrew Scriptures, is the Christ. And so when you come to the Psalms, you're coming to a community who is shaped, who is formed by the promises of God that find their culmination in the Christ. They are prayers in the Christ. And for us as Christians... We are approaching the Psalms on the other side of the fulfillment of the Christ, the Jesus of Nazareth, his life, his death, his resurrection, fulfilled this anticipation of the Christ. And so now we are approaching these, which were originally Hebrew scriptures, as Christians, and we're claiming them because we are praying through Christ. We are engrafted in, into his life, his death, his resurrection. That's the mission of this church, is to unite people to life in Christ. And so because we are in Christ, these prayers are our prayers. These prayers have become our prayers. And then ultimately, my hope for me, my hope for you, my hope for everyone who reads and interacts with the Psalms, is that these would become prayers for Christ. Prayers for Christ. This is the word of God. It's living and active. So what that means is that I want us to have an expectation that God is going to meet us in his word. And specifically in the Psalms, the Psalms stir us up. To prepare us for that encounter with God. That as we are interacting with his word, we meet him. And he changes us. And so, they're prayers for Christ. And I'm getting all of this from the book of Psalms itself and from the scriptures itself. We're looking at Psalm 2... But Psalm 2 is really the end of a two-part introduction to the whole book. So Psalm 1, we're really familiar with. We've preached on it a few times at this church. It's the one that talks about the blessed man who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. And he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. But he delights in the law of the Lord And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is the tree who's planted by waters. And I think for a lot of us, we read that and we're like, oh, so we need to meditate on the law. We need to be planted by the stream. We need to do all that. And that's true, but it's only true after you first see that Jesus is the one who meditated on the law, who is planted by the stream, and that you are his fruit that he drops and plants and grows. You are the fruit that is born in the season. See, Psalm 1 is about the Christ, just like Psalm 2 is about the Christ. And so just as we see kind of this picture of the blessed man in Psalm 1, we see a picture in Psalm 2 of an anointed king, an exalted king, an all-powerful king. And so in this way this picture reminds us of who we're praying to. We're coming before an all-powerful, almighty God. We're bringing our prayers before him. He's not Santa Claus. He's not just a bigger version of us, but he is transcendent. He is majestic. He's exalted, and yet he invites us to come and to know him, and he wants to lift up our eyes to meet his gaze, and that's what the Psalms do. All throughout, there's a cycle, and the Psalms are built on the life of David, and so David is kind of like the centerpiece of the Psalms. He wrote a lot of the Psalms, but it's really important to get this. David knows that the Psalms, ultimately, the things that he's writing, they're not about him. They're about a promise that God made to him. The promise was, in 2 Samuel 7, God came to David and he said, I will establish my throne through your line. There will be a descendant from you. And on my throne, that descendant will sit forever. Forever. And so David saw himself as part of this story of God's promise coming to fruition in the people of Israel. And that story was attached to the promise that God made to Abraham, that God would bless the nations through the offspring of Abraham, of which David was one. And that story is tied back to the garden, to Adam and Eve, when God, when he's pronouncing the curses for a world in rebellion against him, says, I will send a seed, and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so this storyline is the backdrop for the Psalms. And so when you're reading about David, know that it's not really about David. It is, but it isn't. It's about filling out this category of a David-like king who is going to be a righteous sufferer. He's going to suffer things unjustly. He's going to be oppressed. He's going to be resisted. He's going to be rebelled against. And yet there is hope because God's promises never fail. And so that's the flow of the Psalms. So I wanted to give that to you before we actually read Psalm 2, because I think it'll help you understand what's going on here. What it's inviting us into as God's people is not to just say, hey, what does this psalm say about me, and how do I find myself in the psalm? No, how do you lose yourself in this psalm? How do you become swept up in this better story? So we're going to be starting with Psalm 2. And like I said, it's kind of the second part of the introduction to the whole book. Psalm 2, it's at the very beginning of the Psalms, obviously, which is kind of right in the middle of the Bible. You can flip open, there's Bibles in front of you, or you can look on the screen, the words will be up there as well. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Please pray with me. Father, these words are, they're epic. They speak of cosmic realities. They speak of things that, are too big for us to really fully understand. And yet, Lord, we are drawn to them because your word speaks to us. It calls us. And so as we are invited into this conversation, Lord, I ask that we would meet you. That we would meet you not as we expect to meet you, but as you want us to meet you. That you would disorient us from our desires and that we would submit ourselves, Lord, to the good that you have for us. So, Lord, I ask that we would receive this morning what you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, in this psalm, there's kind of three sections. There's three basic sections. You could make four if you wanted to, but we're going to do three. So the first is kind of the world's rebellion. It's the setting that the psalm was written in. So this first chunk from verses 1 to 3 is a description of what the world is like at the time that the psalm is being written. And it's rebellion. And it's rebellion in this macro sense. It's represented by kings and by rulers and there's this cosmic treason that is depicted, and it's this setting themselves against the Lord. And so right away, we're like, okay, let's go back to Genesis 1. Who is it that they're rebelling against? And what, why is it a bad thing to rebel? I mean, we're Americans. We're getting ready for July 4th. We like a little rebellion every now and then. Why is it wrong? Why maybe they need to rebel? Maybe God's holding out on them. Well, in Genesis 1, you see this orientation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. And so there's a separation, a categorical separation between creator and creature. And everything that exists, God determines and sets forth as good. He describes it all as good. All goodness flows from him. His rule, his reign, everything that comes from him is good. But the deceiver deceived Adam and Eve and said, "Mm, God's holding out why don't you decide what's good? And so they did. And here's the thing about that. I think we we think of that act of rebellion, the eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We think of that as like a one-time event, and it was. That really happened historically. And that's the source of all of these ripple effects of evil. But here's something else that I was thinking about. What have people been eating For the rest of the time, all of human history, we keep eating that fruit. We keep thinking we know what's best. We determine good and evil. We set the tone. And any time there's restriction from what we want and the good life, we rebel. And so nations rebel. Rulers rebel. Because... We're exiled from the place of goodness. But in every single human soul, there's a longing to get back there. There's a longing for the good life. There's a longing to be back in the garden. <laughs> Think about it. In the garden, Adam and Eve had perfect intimacy and harmony relationally. There' was no fighting, no, no sin, no wounding, no hurt, no crying. In the garden, the land was a willing friend and cooperator with their work. Don't we want relationships like that? Don't we want work like that? Don't we want our jobs to be just a little bit easier and purposeful? We want to see the work that we do bear the fruit that we want. And so what we have done is we say, okay, we don't want God... But we do want the garden, so let's make it. Let's make it on our own. You see this in the Tower of Babel, but not just the Tower of Babel. You see it repeated throughout human history. Every human project has been basically a way of trying to reproduce the garden without God. And it's because we determine what's good and evil. We do it. All of us, every single one of us do this. And so in the psalm, it's described as the kings of the earth setting themselves, rulers taking counsel together, and then saying, let us burst there, talking about God and his anointed, their bonds apart. Let's break those. What are the bonds? The bonds are the law. It's the goodness of God. It's right and wrong revealed. It's his creation that we reject Him having lordship over. And so we don't want, we see those as bonds. They're restrictions against us getting what we want. And they're cords. They're tying us. They're not allowing us to get the things that we want. And so this is the context of the world. Now, here, all of this is fine. Now let's make it a little bit personal. Here's the problem with all of that. The thing that happens when rulers, when nations, set themselves against God and his anointed, the goodness that flows from him is that they introduce sin, death, evil. And so this is what it it feels like to live in a world like this. I'm not going to have to explain it very much. It's war and rumors of war. It's families being shattered and torn apart. It's addiction. It's infidelity. It's lying. It's cheating. It's dishonesty. It's murder. It's strife. It's pain. It's trauma. That's what it feels like when the rulers set themselves against the source of goodness and harmony and it impacts us and we live in this world and this is the world that we are praying to God in praying to God in a broken world a world torn apart from his goodness from his light a world in complete darkness and we all suffer that And it's a picture of this macro-rebellion. And what now I'm going to ask you to do, because this is an important aspect of the Psalms, as we considered the ecosystem of this world and how it rebels against God and how that creates this ripple effect of sin and death and destruction, well, think about this. That same rebellion is happening in a micro-system in your heart. The ecosystem of your heart, consider it for a minute, it's complex. You have a lot of different desires, a lot of different appetites, a lot of different things happening inside of you, in your soul, what you most deeply want. Some of those things are rebelling. Some of those things are taking counsel with these wicked rulers and considering, how can I get rid of this restriction? How can I separate myself from how God is trying to limit me? How can I work against what he wants to do with his creation? And so the ecosystem of your heart is exposed. No matter how long you have or have not been walking with Christ, this is still true even if you came to Christ at a very young age, you still have an echo of a heart that is set against God. It's because you received it from your first parents, from the original ones who were deceived and rebelled. And that's in us. And it's important for us to remember that as we interact with the rest of this psalm, because it will help identify how we are supposed to emotionally respond to it, how we're supposed to respond to it with our desires, with our prayers. So that's the world's rebellion. That's the context of the psalm. Let's move on to God's response. It comes next in verses 4, and really it goes all the way through 9. He who sits in the heavens laughs. That's a punchy line. That's not what you expect, probably. Probably. It's disorienting. What do you expect? Do you expect God to be angry? you expect him maybe to be worried? I don't know if you guys have paid much attention to the news, but there was an interview with the president of Russia, and he was a little nervous yesterday. There was a rebellion happening, and he was nervous. He was concerned. The one who sits in the heavens laughs. Now, this is poetry, and it's also attributing human attributes to God, who is spirit. So here's what you have to know, is like, this is not like a picture of God as Santa Claus, like, oh, ho, ho, it's not that. But it's describing something that we can understand, because God is so big that we need human terms to help us understand. And the description is a laugh. It's a flippancy it's a like okay he's not bothered he's not worried he's not concerned this is disorienting especially for us i think many of us we like god to be very feely we want him to cry with us we want him to worry with us we want him to kind of really understand us and scripture says that he does He has given us a mediator who took on human flesh. And the person of Christ understands all of those things. But the divine essence that is described here is so far above that because he is not threatened at all. Later on in the Psalms, it says that he has put his glory above the heavens His glory is above anything created. He's uncreated. He doesn't need creation. He's not dependent on it. He's not influenced by it. He is the great I am. I am who I am. Nothing that happens will ever change that. That's what this is communicating. That's what it means for God to laugh at the rebellion. But that's not the only thing he does. So the first thing that the psalm wants to remind us and ground us in is that we are praying to an all-powerful God who is orchestrating and controlling and sovereign over every single human event, even the rebellion against him. But it also shows that God has wrath towards rebellion. So he's not worried about it but he has wrath for it. Again, same kind of thing. This is not like dad getting angry and yelling at the kids. That's not the kind of wrath that the Lord has. Again, he is spirit. He is sovereign. So his wrath comes from his goodness. It comes from his character. It comes from who he is. And it comes because he ultimately wants to protect, preserve creation. He wants to ensure that the goodness of the creation that he made comes to perfection on the last day. And part of that is judgment to clean, to get rid of all that is evil. And so in his wrath, he is speaking to these rebels and he's telling them, okay, rebels, go ahead and rebel. Here's what I have done. And so, this is the wrath of God. Here it is. Are you ready for it? I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see, the wrath of God isn't what we expect at all. We expect the wrath of God to be like anger and fury. But the wrath of God in this In this description in Psalm 2, it's supreme confidence in his plan. And here's why that's described as wrath. For a rebel force, for people who are rebelling against this God, for him to say, go ahead. You can do what you want. My king is on this holy hill of Zion. Now, Zion is representative of the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. It was a place where the temple was to be built, to be built. It would be the temple throne room, the enshrinement of God's throne on the earth. And David's writing this, and the temple was not on Zion during David's life. So here's something that is happening is that as the Lord is working, as he's responding, he is starting to give us a picture of his promises, of the certainty of his decree. He has set my, his king on Zion, his holy hill. And that is rooted in this decree. Verse 7 we all of a sudden get a little bit of distance from David. It's no longer David who's speaking in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the descendant of David. This is the son of David. This is the anointed This is a decree that is coming from the eternal counsel of God. The eternal Son of God talking about a time in time when this decree would come to fruition. Do you see this? The Son, the heir of David is the eternal son. It's God, the very same. The eternal son of God, given a decree, given this work. You are my son, today I have begotten you. You will enter time and space. You will take on human flesh. You will be the son of David, who will sit upon the throne. All of this, again, is in the context of the wrath of God. It's disorienting. How is this the wrath of God? Well, think about Jesus for a minute. Consider him. Consider Jesus as the fulfillment to this, as the anointed one, as the one who is the true son of David, who sits on the eternal throne. Before he was raised up to Zion, he was raised up on Golgotha. Before he ascended to the throne at the right hand of the Father that will come down to earth on the last day, he was raised up on the Roman cross. You see, this is God's wrath poured out on his Son. This is the righteous sufferer who is conquering the rebels by absorbing, by submitting himself to their most dangerous weapon, death itself. The Son came. The Son was begotten. He was made flesh, and he suffered death. And it's in his death that we see verse 9 happen, fulfilled, finished, It is in the death of Christ that he breaks the rebels. He breaks the rebellious kings. He breaks all the forces of evil because he overcomes their best. And it's grounded in this eternal decree. This is amazing. This is the picture of God's response to human rebellion. This is the promise of God, the the solid nature of it, the eternal nature of it. This is where you can ground all of your hopes in a broken world. This is the source of all of your prayers, is in this decree that the Lord said to Jesus, you are my son, today I've begotten you, and I will make the nations your heritage. And he's overcome death, he's overcome evil, he's overcome your sin. This is a picture of grace. It's communicated as wrath, and when we see it in its full form, and when we receive it, it's grace. It's grace. It's unmerited favor and blessing. The rest of the psalm, verses 10 through 12, go through the response. Here's the response. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. And so you see God's goodness, his generosity, his amazing grace in that is that he is giving this incredible warning. He is serving notice to all of us rebels that this is how I treat My good creation that has become destroyed and marred by sin and death and rebellion. I put it to death. But I did that in the death of my son, the anointed one. See that. Be wise to it. Be warned of it. His death, if it's not yours by faith, it will be yours by experience. Because he is not going to do a half job of redemption. He is not going to allow any evil, any darkness, any sin to continue to exist when he finishes his redemptive work, when Jesus does come onto Mount Zion. When he returns. So be warned, he tells us. One of the ways that the Christian life has been described by actually the Heidelberg Catechism, what we've been going through, is guilt, grace, gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. So you look for that rhythm in your life. I don't think it takes much for us to be convinced of guilt. What it takes is a lot to reckon with our guilt. To not feel guilt and then medicate, distract, justify, explain away, hide away from. And so we reject God. We see his grace, we see his word, we see it as restrictive. Like, a loving God wouldn't do that. And it's, I believe, most of the time, it's an attempt to do away with our guilt without actually having it hit us. In this psalm, you see the location for your guilt. And your guilt is resolved in God's grace. It's in this eternal decree. It's in this call. And you see it in his response. In the response of God is that he doesn't overlook it. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't say no big deal. He doesn't lower the standard. He doesn't say just pretend like it's not there. He doesn't say, well, just you do you. No, he says, I see it. I hate it and I put it to death. I put it away. Receive the son. And that's where we end, is in gratitude. As you have come to know God's grace in that way, your life explodes in gratitude. That's the picture here. Think about it in very concrete, kind of like human terms. Imagine an all-powerful, almighty king who has just conquered his enemies and is saying, hey, it's over. I am coming, and my armies are coming to destroy you, but I'll give you a chance. Why Why don't you come and reason with me? I'll talk to you. And this is the call, the invitation to the kings. It's the invitation to our, the ecosystems of our hearts to bring them before God. And we bring them not to bargain, not to say, hey, I'll work this off, I'll serve you. No, we bring them just, we need mercy. We know that we deserve the death, but we want your mercy And that's the picture that you see. That is what it looks like and means to serve the Lord with fear and to rejoice with trembling. It's to kiss the Son. The fulfillment of God's wrath happens in a kiss. And it's a kissing of the Son. It's an allegiance to Him. It's receiving Him. As your Savior, as your Lord, as your Sovereign. It's unbelievable, unfathomable. How good must God be? How powerful must God be to take people like us, people who have rebelled, who have run from God, who have worked against God, who have hated Him, who have destroyed His creation? to be invited into his throne room and to be received with mercy, to be invited to kiss him, to be made his friend, his ally. Kiss the son. And as you kiss the son... You're taking refuge in him, and you receive what you were looking for in the first place. The order of this is so important. You can't say, oh, okay, I want X, Y, and Z, and to get that, I will go and kiss the sun. No. You're creating your own garden again. Jesus is not a means to your best life now. Jesus is the end. And when you are brought into fellowship with him, you will be blessed in ways that you have no idea you wanted. You will be blessed in deeper, more meaningful ways than you can imagine because you are receiving him. You're receiving the king of the universe. This psalm was precious in the life of the early church. And we know this because there's an account of them using it to pray in the book of Acts. Peter and John are preaching the gospel. And the rulers are really annoyed because they're talking about the resurrection. They're talking about life after death. They're talking about sacrificing. They're talking about giving. They're talking about caring for the poor. It was threatening. It was subversive to these worldly powers. And so they imprisoned them. And they ran like a sham trial, and they found them guilty of stuff. But they're like, oh, we can't really punish them because they just had 5,000 people start following them. And if we do anything, they will, they'll probably up, have an uprising. And so they let Peter and John go, but they're plotting. Like, mm, we need to snuff out this church. We need to snuff out this message. We need to extinguish it. And so it's in that context that I'm going to read from Acts 4. Peter and John are released. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, This is their prayer Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they prayed, they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. John and Peter both died martyrs' deaths. So, is Psalm 2 wrong? They took shelter under Jesus' wings, and they were put to death. Is that blessing? In the upside-down world of the cross, yes. (laughs) Because the Lord answered their prayer. Did you see their prayer? It was shaped by confidence in the decree of God. Their prayer was that they would go on preaching the word with boldness. Their prayer was rooted under the sovereign power of God. They understood all of this is happening at your hand, Lord. Give us strength to continue to be faithful, to continue to kiss the sun, to continue to invite the nations into fellowship with him. And the Lord Heard their prayer and he answered them. And so, friends, I want that to be our prayer. I want that as we go into Psalms, I want it to start orienting us towards that desire the desire of the early church, the desire of the disciples of Jesus. They didn't want a great life now because they wanted something better, they wanted the Word of God to go out. They wanted to see the power of God at work. They wanted to see the gospel turn rebels into friends. So let's let that be our prayer. Let's let that captivate us. Let's let that be what we ask God for, knowing that he's going to give it, knowing that he has given everything that we need to continue to do it. Trust in him for that. And allow the Psalms, as we walk through them, to bring you along. It sounds, it sounds intense. It sounds like, whoa, that's like the professional Christian. But it's ordinary. It's an ordinary response to the extraordinary grace of God towards guilty sinners. Please pray with me. Father, you are holy. You are good. And we sit before you this morning with a million different ways that our hearts are set against you. And they're subtle. A lot of them we're blind to. But we want what we want. And we don't want you to get in our way. And so, Lord, as we are confronted with who you are this morning, as we are brought into your presence... I just ask that we would let go of that, that we would see before us your son, that we would see before us the perfection of your plan, that we would see, see before us our king, our Lord, our savior, our friend, and that we would love him, Lord, that there would be nothing that would stand in the way of of our love, our allegiance to him. Because we understand we've received your goodness and your grace in him. And so, Lord, I ask that the spirit would fill us, that we would continually be filled with your spirit so that we can continue the work of your people to be messengers, to be heralds, to be examples, to be witnesses of the work of redemption that you are doing in this earth. Lord, give us that privilege We ask of it in the name of Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.